Good afternoon. I am coming to you from Washington, D.C. I am a Southern girl. By nature. And so this part of the world is always challenging for me. <laughs> it took me longer to get from the airport to middle than from D.C. to New York. So I tweeted on my way in the taxi that I have a love-hate relationship with New York, and I'm in the hate part of it right now <laughs> with taxis. I am so incredibly honored to be here. This is such an important conference all the time, but at this particular time in our nation's history, it becomes even more important. I got to hear a little bit of what Debbie was saying, uh, and I was happy about that because some of what I say will resonate with that. Can you hear me okay? Yes. Will resonate with that, I hope. Uh, I'm not sure what was said before I got here, um, but I want to talk about something that is on my heart, and I hope that it is on your hearts as well. Sometimes we become so inundated with the attacks that we're getting constantly against issues and matters of justice and righteousness, which is another word I use, righteousness, uh, not with all the theological rhetoric around it, but righteousness simply meaning in right relationship with one another, in right relationship with creation, and in right relationship with God. If you are anything like me, you spend your days watching news cycles and watching uh, social media and listening, trying to keep your ear to the ground to what's happening politically and what's happening socially and what's happening in our climate. And it's just all a little bit overwhelming. We could spend our days figuring out which issue we're going to talk about today, which issue we're going to fight for today, which petition we're going to sign up for today. And when we finish today, we'd wake up with just as much to do tomorrow. And all of that is important. But there is something that I am growing increasingly worried about that we don't give as much attention as those who understand justice in a particular way to mean the fight for equity and liberation for all of creation. And the reason that that is important, my friends, is because those of us who do that from any type of faith background are allowing the abdication of language that has to do with faith and religion in ways that paint a narrative that is not true of who we are, not true of who God is, no matter how you express God, and is not true of what it means to be in right relationship. I think this too is a fight that we must take on. I think that language is power, and the power of that language is far too often given to those who show no concern, no love, and no compassion for all of creation. The wonderful thing about this is that it does not require that we are uniform, 
but simply that we are unified in this cause. And so for this reason, this conference is particularly important to me because this seems to be critical to me right now. Few would deny that in a world with ever-increasing social, economic, political, and religious division, we are sorely in need of more unity. And I can think of no better place to center that work than among those who may often differ in expressions of faith, expressions of doctrine, expressions of polity, among those who gather in spaces like this, I can think of no better place to center that work than among those of us who all share a common desire to see good lived out in this complicated world. When I was listening to Debbie and listening to the prompting questions she gave you to engage one another, I was reminded of the words of Paul Tillich who said, the first duty of love is to listen. And we have forgotten to listen. We have forgotten to hear one another deeply, not to respond, not to react, not so that we can get our barb in, but to really hear what one another is saying. And sometimes this is framed in the differences in the way that we express ourselves through our faith, the differences in the way we express ourselves through religion, the differences in the way we express ourselves through gender and through sexuality and through race, and it goes on and on and on. And in moments like this, I am reminded that God has a sense of humor. <laughs> For before you can talk about something, you have to live it. So can I share, you, share with you a little bit of my complicated story? Born in Birmingham, Alabama, I was what you call born Baptist. <laughs> my grandfather was my first pastor, baptized in a small Baptist church where women were not considered qualified to preach or to teach even. Or in my day, I'm 56 years old, what I find humorous is we were not even qualified to carry water into the pulpit. Because my, past, my pastor was my grandfather, I got some privileges that others didn't get. And yet, even in that place growing up, I did not experience it as oppressive because I was loved there as well. Does anyone else know what I mean by that? In addition to my paternal grandfather being my pastor in the Baptist church, my maternal grandmother, who was my babysitter, we didn't have money for daycare, who was my babysitter while my parents worked, was with the Church of God in Christ, a Pentecostal version of everlasting church here on earth. We worshiped on Sunday and Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday. <laughs> when I finished at the Baptist church on Sunday morning, there was always the Church of God in Christ on Sunday night. We spent so much time in church that there was a kitchen in the church that served meals when you wanted to take a break and then you could come back and worship some more. It was in this church that I was introduced to speaking in tongues and the moving fire of the spirit and charismatic worship in a way that I still adore to today. 
And yet in that church also, I was told that women could not preach and women could not teach and women had their place. And in that church, women couldn't wear makeup and you couldn't wear jewelry and you couldn't wear pants. And in my grandmother's house, you couldn't watch TV because surely that's how the devil got in. And you couldn't go to the movies and you couldn't listen to music. And yet in that place, I was loved as well. My primary education was in a Catholic school. <laughs> You're starting to get this? Kindergarten to third grade, it was me and the nuns. All of the students were black and most of the nuns, except for one, and most of the priests, all of the priests were white. In the Catholic Church, I learned that there are some Christians that are more worthy than others. For when I would go to Mass, I was in the section that could not take communion. I was never pulled out of class to go and do my confessions. But I learned very deeply all of the penance. And I still make the sign of the cross when a siren goes off. <laughs> so some of the things that were embedded in me there, I also knew that I was deeply loved there. One of the ironies of this journey for me since Ferguson is one of the first um, invitations I received to speak was at the Catholic seminary. Yeah. I went to speak there in a sea of 300 men in black, and I was the only woman. And I shared with them that I toyed with wearing my collar, but I didn't want to mess them up for life. <laughs> <laughs> and so it was there that I began to rethink the power that we have as clergy, as prophets of the public square, even if you are not in a church, there is power in this position. For even as I stood before them in my 50s, when they asked me the question, what is the one thing you would want us to know before we leave seminary? My answer was, I want you to understand your power. So let me explain it to you. And I began to recite Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. I said the Lord's Prayer without the ending that we always mess up in Catholic services. <laughs> and I wanted them to know that I had not been taught that way since third grade. And yet it was still very much a part of me because that's the kind of power that they have over young minds. Are you following me? Yes. In third grade, my kindergarten teacher in Catholic school was also my neighbor, and so I didn't get away with much. <laughs> and in third grade, she had convinced my parents that I needed to be in a school that would challenge me more. And so they took me to take a test at this school. It was an Episcopal school. <laughs> My mom tricked me and said, I just want them to know you're smart, and I'm always up for competition. 
So I took this test and thought nothing more of it. No one told me I was changing schools. I wondered why I wasn't getting new uniforms. But no one had the conversation with me until the first day of school when my mom said, you're not going to be in the carpool today. I'm taking you to school. And she drove me to another side of town. And when I got to that side of town, there was a drive-up carpool with children I didn't know and didn't look like me. And my mother drove up and said, look in the back seat where there was a big stack of books. She said, those are yours. And this is your new school. Have a great day. <laughs> she did not walk me to class. She did not get out of the car. And I walked into a class for the first time in my life and saw no one who looked like me. All the students were white, and all the teachers were white. And from that moment until college, I never had another black or brown person in a class with me. It wasn't until seminary that I had another black teacher. And it matters. I'm going somewhere with this story. Those students were just as curious as I was. And those students said to me, what color is your blood? I never thought about it. <laughs> it's red, I said, very innocent conversations. Can I touch your hair? And it became obvious to me that I was as foreign to them as they were to me. It was in that fourth grade class by a young boy named Michael, you remember these things that I was, for the first time in my life, called a nigger. I didn't know what a nigger was, but I knew by the way it came out of his mouth that it wasn't something I wanted to be. And so I took the impression of that being in his mouth and the way I felt and knew that it was bad, and I played back in my head things that I'd heard come out of my father's mouth that I knew he would say when he was mad or bad, and I gained all of the energy I had within me and said as forcefully as I could what I'd heard my father say when he comes home from work, you peckerwood. <laughs> because children do what they see, live what they hear learn from who we are and not just what we say. This was the beginning of that journey. Imagine my surprise when I went to mass at the Episcopal church, which was on Wednesdays. In the other, church, in the other school, it was on Mondays, only to find out that the head priest was Michael's father. From Episcopal school, I went to a private high school that didn't give a hoot about anybody's religion. <laughs> it was refreshing in many ways. And I found that friends don't have to share my faith to share my heart. I attended college at Birmingham Southern, which is a United Methodist school. I married later and became Lutheran. <laughs> Believe it or not, it was Missouri City. <laughs> 
I didn't find out until I was deep into the church that I couldn't do anything but sing in the choir. And I knew that that wouldn't last long. My marriage didn't last. After 12 years, unfortunately, we could not make it. And in making that change, I left that church to start anew. It was in the African Methodist Episcopal Church when I first saw a woman stand in a pulpit. And I knew from the moment that I saw her that I didn't particularly like that she didn't have any bling going on. <laughs> but I knew that that was what I was called to do. And I lamented it because I really just didn't want to be in black suits and no makeup the rest of my life. <laughs> it took me a few years, but it was in that church that I was ordained and later became a pastor there first. I entered seminary at Eden Theological Seminary, which is United Church of Christ. And I went through the entire seminary uh, experience to the last three months before I realized that God was calling me to a United Church of Christ church. And having been accepted at that church as a pastor, I chose not to hold on to both denominations and to dive headfirst into the United Church of Christ. And I think it's appropriate for me, for having been all those other places, I am convinced that at least in part, UCC stands for utterly confused Christians. <laughs> so I share all of that to say, <laughs> don't record that, I might lose my job. <laughs> I record all of that to say, if anyone can speak about the need for unity in, without uniformity, it ought to be me. I'm walking with it in my body. <laughs> this brings me to my favorite prophet, the prophet Micah. Micah in the First Testament had a lot to say about religious folk. I particularly like his challenge in Micah 6, Micah 6 through 8, that ends with the question, what does the Lord require of you, O mortal, to do what is good, to do, to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God? The prophet Micah is speaking in a context with no shortage of religious people. In fact, Micah describes widespread religiosity <laughs> where people, especially religious leaders, are making a public show of how religious they are with loud lip service. It appears in this setting that religious leaders are self-satisfied and that all they want is the power of their power. For a messenger of God to enter this scene and proclaim that this is not the way that God would have things to do can be quite a shock and in some instances be quite dangerous. And yet, that is what we are called to do. And I'm not speaking just to those in ordained ministry. I am speaking to those also in the pew who have prophetic messages that must be proclaimed in a time when religious rhetoric has gotten out of hand. It must be proclaimed in a time when, I don't know about you, I think this probably happens to Jackie, at least, and many of you, I see Lisa Sharon Harper over there, where people ask me to do interviews and then they define me for me. 
they decide that I am the liberal left voice of faith. And I always refute that because faith does not lean left or right. I am simply a follower of the way. Because of my faith, I define it that way, meaning that I am held accountable for how I treat my neighbor. I'm held accountable for how I treat all of creation. I'm held accountable for being in right relationship with God and with you and with nature. Those are the things that I live by. I serve an Afro-Semitic Palestinian who was born on the wrong side of the tracks to a yet single mother who spent all of his time down here teaching us how to talk to people who have been outcast, how to bring in those who are left out, how to make sure the hungry get fed even before you preach, how to make sure that he touches all of those who are hurting in a way that they know that they are loved. That is the call. And it's the call no matter who you are. So Micah in this situation with people who were so caught up on religion that they had lost their framework of who God really is seems quite appropriate to me today. For these are people who Micah says were wealthy but full of violence, were inhabitants who speak lies, and yet God still referred to them as God's people while trying to help them understand what had gone wrong. God gives a litany of ways that God has shown up for them over and over again. Talks about bringing them out of bondage in Egypt. Talks about leaders that were there for their care. Talks about defending them against, against oppression and against being taken hostage over and over again. And God makes it a point in this text to say that in spite of how faithful I have been to you as individuals and collectively, you have not responded in ways that give me honor, that bring me joy, that are centered to who I am to you. This God that we're talking about is a God who hears the cries of people who are in bondage even now who brings the outsider blessings and not just the insider, who shows compassion and mercy when anyone falls. This God is a God who cannot stand idolatry, even when it's done in God's name. Is God who cannot stand injustice, no matter what religious cloak you put on it. It is a God who is faithful no matter what. And in this dialogue through Micah, God bears witness of God's goodness by calling all of creation to affirm what is being said. It is so clear that the people cannot reply with any excuses, cannot reply with any contempt. But in this particular story, Micah makes it clear that the only answer for you to give is to get correct. Micah makes it clear that there will be no more business as usual in the religion department without a change of heart and life. 
And I am suggesting to you, my friends, it's because we are doing business as usual that we find ourselves in the place that we are now. So just as Micah says to those people, no more burnt offerings, no more thousands of rams, I don't want your firstborn, I don't want you to keep a scorecard about who's doing right and who's doing wrong. I simply want you to do what I have asked, justice, mercy, and walk humbly with God. What is this thing called justice? Justice, whether in the Hebrew or the Greek, is translated from the same root word always as the word righteousness. Justice, not in legal terms, but in terms of rightness with humanity, is to be in right relationship with one another, right relationship with the God you serve, and right relationship with community. And why is that relevant here at Middle today? Because, my friends, there is no existential distance between social justice and discipleship. We must stop making social justice an appendage to our lives. We must stop allowing other people to act as if, as if social justice is something one puts in a bucket that some people specialize in it and other people have nothing to do with it. Social justice is core to all of our beliefs, for it is the way that we express love out loud to humankind and to creation. There is no chasm of distinction between activism and being church. And there is no distance between my fight and my faith. Why is this relevant? Because we must reclaim our place in the dialogue around faith. Not just be relegated to conversations people occasionally want to have about a justice they don't understand. There are no conversations about faith that don't center justice. And if we who know that don't begin to say that and stand up to people who are speaking antithetical to the gospel and claiming it as the gospel, then we are just as guilty as they are. Why in the hell, and I mean hell, why in the hell would we call the religious right, right? Why would we argue from a place that would suggest that there is any kind of understanding of theology or Bible in people who would use a weapon created and designed originally in the spirit to bring us together to pull us apart. This is important that you begin to understand that the Bible is not God's book 
about holy people. It is a people's book about a holy God. And when we understand that, my friends, then your story becomes holy and my story becomes holy and everyone else's story becomes holy no matter how alike they are or no matter how distinct they are because God is too big to be put into a box. God has enough room for all of our expressions. And this is the message that our country is so desperately in need of. We should not abdicate the right to be faithful, the right to even be religious if you so choose, and the right to not be religious and move by the Spirit if you so choose to those who are living antithetical to the word of justice and peace. And we must confront that. The problem is in the way that we see ourselves, we sometimes are so accommodating that we accommodate that which we should not tolerate. What I'm saying is that Micah calls to question the things that are most important then and the most important things now. To do justice on an individual and social scale in ways large and small, justice must be our way of life, not our occupation, not our pastime, not our weekend conference our way of life. Periodic nods to equity do not constitute a faithful life. We cannot only observe racial quotas in church, in synagogues, in temples. We cannot only reserve, observe racial quotas on committees, in justice organizations, in schools, and consider ourselves having fulfilled justice. For really the only place where it matters how many colors you have in a place is at Crayola. <laughs> what we are after is more than inclusion, is more than diversity. What we're after, as Barbara Holmes would say, is belonging. Not to be included in any one circle, for if I'm included in, by definition, someone is out. Not to be in the circle or outside the circle, but to be the circle itself. So much so that with every individual who joins our ranks, we should be transformed into something different. For every individual, whether they look like us in skin or not, whether they worship like us or don't. There are differences unique to all of us and our collective should make its own circle. We cannot continue to send checks and have GoFundMe accounts for disaster relief and avoid examining the lifestyles that we live that contribute at least in part to the natural disasters that we're funding. We can't keep doing hunger walks and health walks 
and refuse to change our consumerist ways. We cannot confess in whatever our mode of confession may be, our penance for what we have done wrong on one day and the next day be the same way we were before. Rather than offering false sacrifices, which God no longer requires, we should do justice, love mercy. What is loving mercy? What does that mean to you? What is mercy? That's a real question. What's mercy? I didn't hear you. Forgiveness? Ah. The womb? Ah. Compassion? Walking with? Undeserved? Space for? Yes. All of those things, right? The, the phrase I like most I got from the Riverside Church, making space for grace. And so may I give you the strongest political strategy I know right now? I wish, my prayer is, that we who are in this work together on the same side might learn to make space for one another. For we are much better at making space for grace with outside strangers than we are among ourselves. The truth is I come to you with story. I shared some of my story to you. And it's not that I walked through all of that and didn't have some of it seep into my being. There are things that I've had to work out things that even were against my own goodwill that I've had to work out of my psyche and work out of my habits because it is the water that I was birthed into. Do you understand what I'm saying? It is unreasonable to expect that everyone comes into this place knowing all that they need to know to do this work. It is unreasonable to expect that we won't make mistakes among ourselves. It is unreasonable to expect that some of the things that we grew up with, some of the things that we were born into, some of the things that we were taught in Sunday school classes or Hebrew classes or wherever you took your classes, some of the things we encountered at school, it is unreasonable to expect that we come to this work for justice as a clean slate. We do not. And yet, if you are crazy enough to show up with me, I'm crazy enough to stay with you. <laughs> and that is what it's going to take for us to do this work together, to do justice, to love mercy, understanding that none of that is the destination, but the destination is that we might walk with however you name God, or if you name no God, however you name your higher power, that we might walk in unity towards the things that we know are just and right. That is my prayer for us, my friends. More than I worry about what's happening in the White House, because that's like so, 
I won't even say. But here's the thing. It's not the first time the White House has been jacked up. We just have somebody who talks about it more. Right? If we can become unified, we can change this world. I believe that in my core. And I believe you believe it too. So more than ever, this is the time. This is the time not to be partisan. This is the time not to be duped. This is the time for us to articulate what are our concerns and our issues toward the liberation of humanity and to line up every political figure according to those issues and use our collective power to make our voices heard as the voices of justice, the voices of righteousness, the voices that are willing to make space for grace. Thank you. Probably highly inappropriate to comment on how beautiful your shoes are, but I'm just going to do that anyway. Tracy, thank you so much for bringing it. Thank you. So we're going to have some conversation time with Tracy, and once again, we'll bring the mic to you. We'll try to get some diverse voices. We're going to do that for about 20 minutes, okay? Who's got questions for Tracy? But I want to say, Jackie, what an honor it is always to come to middle with the incredible Jackie Lewis and the work she does. Tracy and I are both Auburn senior fellows, mm -hmm. but I think I think if I think if I I think I'd find you. I think I would find you, my sister wherever you were in the Same world, here. to collaborate with you. You are just a badass, okay? <laughs> badass. So let's, let's have some questions. Now, and Tracy and I love on each other later. Who, who's got a question for Tracy? Raise your hand. Let's get mics around, okay? Um, okay, yeah, I'll sit up here. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Rob. Hi, thank you. My okay. name's Deanne. Um, I personally am a Metameta Baptocostal myself. Yeah, and uh, yes, ma'am, thank you. So I appreciate your background of diversity and love every tradition that has touched my life. My question is, um, on, an, on a church development level, regarding that, let me sidestep here. What I hear you say is that we have to be self-differentiated enough to stand in our power to own it to step into spaces with other people that have a common vision, mm -hmm. the way. How do you help a body of believers to cultivate themselves in their own space to want to grow and develop and, and step into a very um, 
what is the word? Um, I guess a, just a very developed space where they can exist this way and have conversations with others that cre creates this, you know, this welcoming atmosphere while not feeling threatened by it. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Thank it you. does, and um, I want to be very cognizant that I know this is a multi-faith space, which is one of the things I love about this space. I can only speak in my truth, right? Um, when I was in seminary, I read a book that was not assigned, and it will never be assigned, um, because it would be considered beneath seminary. It was written by Eugene Peterson, who wrote, um, who translated the Message Bible. But it's a little book called The Unnecessary Pastor. And that book changed my life. <laughs> it's a very small book. And the basic premise of the book is that there are very few career choices that one can have where one literally gets up, talented or not, and mounts a stage at least once a week and holds people hostage who have to listen to them. <laughs> and it's even more dangerous because they're held hostage in a place where dissent is not common, right? And so even if people disagree with you, you um, leave with the impression that you're all of that. When in reality, everyone who is listening to you is really the all of that. And that the people who are you are holding hostage with your words are the congregation. And they can be congregation together whether you are there or not. The only one that's replaceable in that is the pastor, right? And so to be careful not to think too much of oneself. And so I, I'm gonna get in trouble for this, but it's my truth, so I'm gonna say it. Um, I consider the church my front line. That is my, Ferguson is something that I did because of the church. <coughs> I believe that the church needs rebirthing <laughs> and needs to be transformed. And a piece of that is that people who have the privilege of standing before people and leading them must also have the accountability and the responsibility of empowering people to have their own thoughts, their own ways of being. It is literally a decrease of who we are so that other people might start to grow. Some of the ways that that shows up uh, in, collective, um, in collective gatherings would be simple things like acknowledging that the Bible is not an inerrant document. Um, acknowledging that while truthful because of what can be gleaned from the stories that it is not factual, correct? Yes. Not always factual telling the truth about the complicated nature of the church. All of those thi are things that I think we are called to do from this place that liberate people to tell the truth. And we can use sacred text, I, every sacred text I'm sure, but I know mine best, right? 
I can't tell you how liberated congregations are when I actually talk about, for instance, the story of Tamar, right? There are two Tamars, one was raped, the daughter of David. When one tells that story, and I often ask the question, who's gonna cry for Tamar? Because David cried for the son. If you know this story, how people feel liberated then to speak into what is happening in their lives. How the, the mere fact that if you are in that leadership position, by the way you orchestrate the books that are in your study, for people who come to meet with you, if people see books on your shelf that speak to things that people don't talk about, then they know that this is a space where they can talk. If we remember, as my friend Reverend Reggie Williams says, that the Bible, with the exception of David and Solomon, is a book written by people living under oppression for people in oppression, <laughs> right? And if you read it from a place of oppression, you read a totally different story than you read if you read it from a colonizer's view. An example of that would be, there's a story in the Bible about a master and three people who are given talents. One is given 10 talents and one is given five talents and one is given one talent and told to be good stewards over them while the master is gone. The text itself says that the master profits off of that which he does not sow into, that he gains off of that which he doesn't work for. The master comes back to inquire of the people who had the talents. The person with 10 talents has invested those talents and multiplied it and given the master 20 back. The person with five talents has invested those talents and multiplied it and given the master double back. The person with one talent hid that talent and did not increase it at all, dug it up and gave the master back what the master gave him. All of my life, I have been taught that I should be like the person with 10 talents. All my life, I've been taught that I should be the one that takes what is given to me and makes more for the master. But when you read that as a place of, uh, as coming from a book that is written by people living in oppression to people who are in oppression, then you began to understand that the hero in that story is the one who keeps that talent and gives back just what was given because I'm not gonna make anything for the master that doesn't benefit the whole. Do you understand what I'm saying? And so that's what I mean by the power, the power of the platform, the power of the pulpit, whatever, the power of the public square, Wherever people are listening to you, one must begin to reinterpret even the narratives that we have learned in ways that form and shape liberation. Amen. Have you never wondered how people who were enslaved, this is the 400th year, right? How people who were enslaved here could be given a Bible with the Exodus taken out of it? a book that they were given to help them serve better. And many of them who could not even read 
find a story of liberation in it, that only happens because they understood some kind of way that this is a code book about people who were oppressed talking to the oppressed. The Bible, when read that way, is no different than Negro spirituals, which are sung to help people find a way out of bondage. Do you get what I'm saying? And not just people of color can do that, but people who are free can do that. Yeah. It just makes you be like, mm. maybe, maybe I don't know. Thank you, Tracy. Is there, I don't know, should we speak after that? <laughs> I'm not positive. I feel like Sing a song. And thank you, and, and thus pass the offering plate or something. I don't know. Woo, that's so good. That's just good. All right. Okay, there's a question over here. Thank you, Tracy. You better preach. Good afternoon. Hi. Hi. I am... Sorry. <laughs> Thank you for speaking with us. I'm, I'm questioning as a person who is beginning this journey as a justice fighter, um, organizer, and everything else, how, how to walk in a system, I'm, I'm, I'm Methodist, and I'm go doing the journey um, through Methodism. The question I have is, how do you do that work when you're, the vehicle you're trying to use to help others is the one that's oppressing? And you can't really, in order to get to where you're supposed to, be, you're perceived supposed to be, um, means you need to shut up to get there so you can speak. What do you do in the meantime? I'm hesitant to answer that because I've been kicked out of a few places. <laughs> um, it's difficult. And one must walk in one's own truth, right? And so there are some times when you connect, um, if you can, what is your name? Sierra. Tierra. Tierra. If, if you can manage Tierra to hold on to your own story, then you will be able to separate what is necessary and what is not. It, I don't know how to, to tell you how to do that, right? But there are, are in, any, in any denomination, it's a lie that any of us have it right, right? So in, in any denomination, in any faith walk, you're gonna have to walk that tightrope with that until you get the authority to do what you need to do. But don't lose yourself in it. And if you began to lose your own story, if that journey becomes more important to you than staying whole, staying connected to justice, then it's probably not the right system for you. And only you can make that determination. Do you know what I'm saying? So I, I went through the Methodist system, that's where I was ordained. But I knew 
already early that it wasn't somewhere that I could stay. I don't believe in hierarchical power in that way. Um, and so it wasn't for me. But it is for some other people. And the work that we have to do has to be done everywhere. <laughs> right? So somebody's got to stay. And I make, and I make no... Um, I make no judgments about that. I just pray that you hold on to yourself, to your own stories, right? Yeah. yeah. That's really beautiful, Tracy. Thank you. Hi, Tracy. Hi. Hi, Jackie. Hi, Hello. So my name is Sean Marshall. I'm a, a proud member of Middle, and I have my Bible, Tracy, Yay. which was signed by the Reverend Dr. Jackie Lewis. Oh, no, uh, I mean, not that. No, no. Let's be clear. Not like that. No. Um, but I'm also a, a holy warrior and a warrior of light through holy yoga ministries. And so my question, and you kind of answered it. You kind of started. I would love to hear both of your perspectives. Being that I'm a leader in the secular world, mm -hmm. right? I have to deal with corporate America and all that it comes with. But I'm also a leader in the Christian world. How do you navigate that? Because you told your story so well. I grew up Catholic, right? I, mm -hmm. I am definitely enmeshed in the word. And there are times I don't want to like my neighbor. I want to mm -hmm. fire that client. I need to let go of that employee. Mm -hmm. But then at, in church, we have to love everyone. And it's that duality that I personally, I struggle with at times. And I'd love to hear how you sort of navigate both of those worlds secular, because we all have to live, and then spiritual and being enmeshed in the Bible. I'm going to let your pastor take that, Sean, because those, those, those two worlds are not as far apart as I uh, think we want to believe, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, it, <laughs> Thank you, Tracy. But, but I agree with you. I, I was going to say something like that, Sean that I think maybe our journey, and I think this does go to some of what Tiara is saying, I think our journey is to get, to sync up more of ourselves. Like, mm -hmm. <coughs> becoming an adult, growing up, becoming fully who we are, is about syncing up ourselves. Mm -hmm. So Tracy's saying, hang on to your story, yes. Can you hold on to your story inside that story? Can you redact your story? Can you authenticate your story? Can you authorize yourself inside another story? If you can't, pretty soon that can't be your place. If we can't, Sean, hold together what some would call secular and we would call sacred, we're not synced up. And I feel like, like I don't want to out Tracy's age, oh, she said. But getting to be almost 60, Tracy, has been a journey of syncing up my mm -hmm. story. You know, uh, this is who it is. I'm aligned inside my own self. Sean, to be aligned inside your own self. So your, your values that come from spirit are also your values out there in the world. Mm -hmm. That you are in the process always of bringing, you know, kingdom of God into kingdom, into the world. Bringing your spiritual self into the world. Like, because you can't live a bifurcated life well. Mm -hmm. You can't live a split life well. So I think our journey is about making one aligned self where we're grounded in the earth, as Tracy was saying earlier, and grounded in spirit, and grounded in our history, grounded in our fullness, 
And that's our truth. When Tracy said our truth, that's overlapping circles that get closer and closer together till they're one. Yes. What do you think about that, sister? I, I agree 100% with you. Uh, <clears throat> I think we also would have to do some unpacking of this word love, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, it's one of the most abused words. Yes. <laughs> um, and misinterpreted words, right? Love is hard work. And, and love calls us into accountability with grace, right? Um, and I share this because I have permission to share it. Um, I, I have a, a woman um, who has been a good friend of mine for years um, and who I consider someone that, that I walk with, I'll just put it that way, um, who was raised in a church that was silent when they knew that she was being abused, sexually abused. And so this, this woman ends up with two children by her father, okay? And no one spoke up for her and continued to promote for her that that spiritual walk you're talking about means that I must love this person in ways that are harmful to me, right? And so a part of the work we have to do is figure out what love really is. Because love does not make me kill myself. And we have to figure out a way to be faithful to what we believe and stop loving what's killing us in that way, right? So love doesn't mean that I have to lay myself down and be tortured and be abused. That's not real love. Love is calling into accountability. Cornel West would say, justice is what love looks like in public, right? And so we, we've abused this word in ways that we've allowed some to use it as a word of power in subjugation. And it should never be that. That's not the emphasis of what you were saying, but I'm always triggered by that word because people think, oh, well, if you're gonna be a person of faith, you gotta love everybody. And I do love everybody, but it's a lot of people I don't like. <laughs> right? And I, and I don't allow people in my space this that are not healthy for me. Exactly, Trey. I mean, love your neighbor, love God, like just in the Christian place of love God with everything, love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah. The empire. Yes. The empire, the same empire that took Exodus out of the Bible for black people yes. is the same empire that teaches too many of us that our, our love walk means self-hatred and yes. self-loathing and letting the master in quotes, whoever that master is, abuse us, use us. Yes. That is not love. That's yes. actually something else. That's actually yes. something else. We have time for one quick question. Let's have you, sir. Okay. Thank you, Tracy. Thank you. Dorian Coulter here, Tracy. And I, my question for you has to do with something I'm wrestling with. How do you find the strength in the world in which we're living today 
to keep showing up. To keep showing up. I demand joy. I demand joy. I demand joy. Right? And, and, and what I mean by that, sir, is I go in search of joy. There are times when I've had enough, like everyone else in here. And, it, and you know what? Whatever it is I've had enough with, it's going to be there tomorrow. Right? Uh, this, this is not funny, so I hope I don't offend anybody by this, but uh, in the Methodist church when I was being trained, I started out, every time the phone would ring, I would try to answer. Every time someone called, I'd try to go, right? And I had a bishop once who was chastising me because I had gotten up in the middle of the night. I was tired. We had a meeting. I said, I had to go to the hospital because so-and-so died at 3 this morning. And he said, okay. He said, what time did you get to the hospital? I said, I got there about 2.30, 3 o'clock. He said, did you make it into the room before he died? I said, no. He said, well, then he'd still be dead if you had waited till the next day. <laughs> right? I mean, you can't say that to everybody. You know what I'm saying? But, but what I'm saying is, We've gotten into this cycle. It's almost like a mini God complex, kind of, that we have to answer everything and we have to answer it right now. And when your body and your spirit says enough, recognize your humanity, right? And demand joy. Go see a movie. Go be with people who make you feel good. Go listen to some music and laugh. Go shopping, <laughs> right? Get a this, massage. This sister right, I was about to say it. This sister right here has upped my massage game, right? Don't feel guilty for taking care of you. Because if you don't take care of you, you're not going to make a difference to anybody else. Find joy. Turn the tweets off. You don't have to hear everything that everybody's saying. Turn Facebook off. Turn the news off. It will be just as horrible when you get back. <laughs> it will be. Tracy, Thank you. I love you Tracy, all. Tracy, Tracy Blackman. Thank you. Tracy. Thank you, Mike.